From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. All right, friends, welcome back to Beyond Right. This is our course all about Jewish values and Jewish ethics and Jewish law. They tell a story about the town Ganif. You know what a Ganif is? Ganif is a thief. The town thief's name was Yankel. Why Yankel? Who knows? That's, that's, the go, that's our go-to name. So they tell a story about the, about the town thief Yankel who steals the rabbi's gold watch. He feels a little guilty about it, and he can't, uh, he can't sleep that night. So the next day, the next morning, he goes to the rabbi's office. And he says to the rabbi in a meeting, he says, Rabbi, I stole a gold watch. And, Yankel, and the rabbi says to him, Yankel, that's a big sin. Go and return it to the owner immediately. So Yankel says, do you want it? The rabbi says, no. I said, return it to its owner. Yankel says, but the owner doesn't want it. So the rabbi says, ah, in that case, you can keep it. I hope you guys follow that joke, but that is the way to, yeah, sort of, okay. All right, to think about it, do the replay, it works. All right, next story. Next story also takes place with Yankel the thief who goes to the rabbi, this time shortly before the day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he's feeling pretty guilty about his thievery. He, he feels bad about being the town Ganif. And he asks for a path of teshuva, a path of personal rehabilitation, spiritual restoration. The rabbi spends time with him and he goes over a plan for Yankel's penitence and for his restoration, rehabilitation. And Yankel takes leave of the rabbi. Well, a few, hour, a few hours later, the rabbi wants to check the time and he realizes his watch is gone. <laughs> Unbelievable. His watch is gone. It's got to be Yankel. He's the only guy who was here. He tracks down Yankel, calls him in, and says, Yankel, tell me, did you steal my watch? And Yankel says, I must admit, yes. Rabbi says, I don't get it. Yankel, we were just speaking for a while about shuva, about repentance, about penitence, about not stealing, and you stole. Stole my watch. And Yankel says, look, shuva is shuva, penitence is penitence, but business is business. Okay, friends, that was the punchline. This is going to be an epic conversation. This is going to be an absolutely incredible class. You see, this course overall, this course is all about exploring Jewish law and ethics and seeing how the values of Judaism shape the laws of Judaism. And in this regard, the more radical, the better. In other words, the more radical the laws, the more radical the values, well, the more we get to know, get to learn about Judaism. So last week, we looked at neighborly disputes, or maybe not so neighborly disputes. And we saw how Jewish law has no problem telling someone what they can and cannot do on their own property. Jewish law has no problem legislating the fact that you may have to change out your wood fence for a glass screen or some other sort of screen that allows light through. Jewish law has no compunction, has no issue with telling you exactly what you 
can and cannot do in your own property. And we also saw last week how Judaism is more than happy to allow someone to allow someone to benefit from someone else's property as long as it's as long as the owner is not taking a loss. In other words, to help out another at no expense to you should be a win-win. And Jewish law will work hard to enforce those values. That's what we saw last week. The Jewish value of being there, of helping out another, should supersede any sense of selfishness, any sense of, of its mind and trying to keep something for oneself. Of course, within limits, but that was the conversation last week. Was that radical? Sure, to a certain extent it was radical. But it's nothing compared to what we're going to cover tonight. You see, in this lesson, we're going to explore Judaism's radical take on personal and criminal rehabilitation. We're going to discover what Jewish law and ethics has to say about a criminal who wants to come clean and how they need to go about that process and, moreover, what we, what we do as a society, as a, as a legal system to help encourage and foster that path. Disclaimer, and don't say it didn't warn you, what we study tonight, some of what we study tonight will shock you. And in my opinion, that's going to be a very good thing. So in this process, we're going to walk away with some incredible Jewish values that can have an immediately positive impact on our lives and our relationships. Tonight's class is big. It's very important. It's incredibly brilliant. And I'm glad you're here with me. So let's begin. Okay. We begin with a case study. This is a true story that happened in 2013. And the story still goes on today. Okay, the story be begins in 2013, and it's still going on today. Let me pull it up on my screen. If you have a book, and I think everybody should have a book at this point, um, you can find text one, which is our first case study, on page number 38. Okay, again, page 38. I'm pulling it up here on my screen, and I am going to read this myself. It's a little bit of a longer text, and uh, I'm going to take this away. All right, an anti-Semite discovers that he's Jewish. December 2013, a speaking engagement by former anti-Semitic Hungarian politician Chanad Szegedi, I think that's how you pronounce his name, scheduled to be held in Montreal tonight, was canceled after Szegedi was forced to leave Canada. Szegedi is a former leader of the Hungarian National National, nationalist Zsabek Party, known for its extreme far-right and anti-Semitic views until he embraced Judaism after discovering his Jewish heritage. The Chabad of Westmount Educational Center in Montreal had invited Segedi to tell his story entitled My Journey from Hater to Fighter of Hatred, but a video presentation was played instead after Canadian immigration officials forced Segedi to leave the country. There were rumblings that Segedi was asked to leave Canada after complaints were made from within the Jewish community. Roughly 200 people attended the presentation, which became heated at times with people standing and yelling. I acknowledge that I have a lot of sins, and this is why I understand those people who are not happy with me being here. But these sins I try to rectify, not only at the verbal level, but at the level of my actions, said Segedi in his tape message. I have to tell the Canadian Jewish community 
that I am that I am exactly such a Jew as they are. I cannot help it as you cannot help it. Okay, first of all, I want you to raise your hand if you've heard of this story of Segedi. Have you heard of this story? Okay, so here's the deal. I feel like we once, uh, we once, we once screened a documentary about this story um, for our teen group, for our C teen group. This is going back probably about five years, five, six years. So this guy was one of the most rabid, anti-Semitic, right, uh, far right or whatever nationalist um, uh, uh, politicians in, in Hungary. This guy would lead uh, chants against Jews. It was crazy. This guy, there are videos. I mean, it's, he didn't, it's not that long ago. It's, it's going on about a decade. This guy was, was elected to different, different uh, um, offices. He had a seat in the Hungarian parliament. Crazy stuff. This guy was like super, super Jew hater, anti-Semite. Until the news broke that he was actually Jewish. It's a crazy story. He didn't know he was Jewish. His grandmother was Jewish. His mother's mother was Jewish. He found out. His, pa- his mother kept it a secret. Eventually, he got out there. He finds out that he's Jewish. Well, can you imagine what his friends were saying? Who were his friends? You can imagine his friends? His friends, fellow, fellow Jew haters, right? They find out he's Jewish. What do they do first thing? They kick him out of the party, okay? So now he's nothing. Like all, his whole life that he's lived for, he's got nothing. And he now he knows he's Jewish. And his whole, like, his whole world collapses. Anyway, his, his, he, he, his next move was to embrace Judaism and to apologize and to you know, do that thing. So he, he flies to Montreal, flies to Canada to speak at Chabad in Montreal um, and give a lecture about going from hater to, uh, to fighter of hatred. Meanwhile, word leaks to Canadian officials that you have this uh, human rights violator, this anti-Semite coming to Canada, they don't let him out of the airport. So he records, and they basically send him back to Hungary. He records a message, they play it at Chabad, meanwhile the crowd breaks out in like, just, it just devolves into to, to crowd on, not, not physical violence, but like shouting and yelling at each other. Some people saying that we should listen to this guy, give him a chance. Other people saying, how dare he come and speak? This guy, this Jew hater, we don't care if he's Jewish or not. He's making it up or whatever it is. So here's the question. And that, that's the story, that's the news report from December 2013 about the, uh, the brouhaha in Chabad of Westmont. Here's the discussion question that, that I want to raise for tonight. And it's in your books. Take a look, put it on the screen. Exercise 2.1, again, this is page 40. Would you ever be open to accepting Chaned Segedi as a member of the Jewish community in good standing? Okay, open your mics, jump in. Would you be open to accepting Segedi as a member of the Jewish community in good standing? Yes or no? Let's actually take a quick poll. Yes, raise your hand. Okay, no, who says no? Okay. All right, Steve, you may be the lone, the lone no. How <laughs> about Steve? Tell me. You no, know, when I when I looked at that, I thought to myself, yes, he's going to say all the right things, but if he's a Jew hater, I he's he's not a good person. 
So he's going to say, suddenly he's Jewish, he's going to say, oh, I love the Jews, the Jews this, the Jews that. Right. So he'll find somebody else to hate. You're calling into so question his whole... Got it. You're, you're calling into question his sincerity. It's easy for him to say, you know, I, I recant when he finds out that he's Jewish and he has no more, and his political party has blown him up. So, but the question is, what kind of person is filled with hate to begin with and what else is he going to hate? Okay, good. Valid point. Valid point. Why might you say for somebody else uh, that raised their hand for the yes that you would accept Zagetti? Why would you accept him in good standing? Help me out. Somebody jump in on that? Well, I, I will. But, you know, who am I to, to decide whether or not his, uh, uh, his change of heart is legitimate? The man announces that he's uh, had a change of heart. Right. Finds out he's Jewish and he's going to attend. He's going to Chabad. Right. If you're a Jew hater, you're not uh, going to Chabad. Right. To, to give a lecture. Right. So I give him the the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Um, he's talking on a subject that you know we could benefit from as Jews. You know what makes someone hate Jews, and uh, I think there's danger in a man reaching out to the Jewish community and and are turning our backs on him. Good. I, that to me would be uh, a real tragedy. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Very well put. Very well put. Um, do you remember, uh, who remembers, we did a program in 2019 with a fellow named T.M. Garrett. Who remembers that? Was anybody there, T.M. Garrett? Um, he was a guy, trying to remember his story. Also, a guy who was a Jew hater and ultimately came back. Sorry, what was somebody? Was it prison? Did he come out of prison? Mm, I don't believe so. I'm trying to remember. Um, I could probably look it up on my computer. T.M. Garrett. Life After Hate with T.M. Garrett. And he was... What was his deal? Um, here. He was... T.M. grew up in Germany. He was an ardent neo-Nazi. He founded his own KKK group. And he had a total change of heart and became and now is a human rights advocate and an advocate for Jewish interests. Okay, so here's a guy who turned his life around. So I think what David is saying is that, you know, give the guy a chance. If he's, if he's you know, raising his hand and saying, you know, I've, I've changed, I've seen the light, I've changed my ways, whatever was the impetus, whatever the impetus behind it, the bottom line is, this guy's on board, get him on board. Okay, good. So we have different ways of looking at it, and indeed, it was reflected. In the uh, in in at that event in Montreal. Now I haven't kept tabs on Sagetti in the in the interim in the in the years in between. But last we heard, the Chabad rabbi um, overseas was working with him and uh, and encouraging him. In fact, a lot of that documentary video that we screened was focused on the Chabad rabbi over there getting you know navigating that situation of learning with this guy, inviting this guy to shul in Hungary and, um, you know, and, and giving this guy an aliyah to the Torah, which certainly created a, 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 a strong response from many of the congregants. Anyway, be that as it may, let's go back inside to our, uh, let's go back inside to our text. Take a look at the next question here, which I think is very interesting, okay? The next text says the following. Give me a second here. Okay, if you would accept 
Zagedi, as a member of the Jewish community in good standing, what would he have to do in order to earn acceptance from you? In other words, and it's really not about us, but it's, you know, what would he have to do to demonstrate that he's legit? And the question that follows is, what might be the key elements of genuine repentance? And we're not going to answer this in an in a, in a, you know, in a, in elaborate discussion. It's re- these questions are there to get us thinking. You know, if, if, Zagedi, if this guy, if, if we're skeptical, and, you know, this guy says, oh, I'm cha- I'm, I found that I'm Jewish and I'm cool with Jews now and I don't hate anymore. And we're like, yeah, I don't know. Like what Steve was saying before, like, uh, I don't know, not, not sold on it yet. The question is, what does this guy have to do in order to earn our trust? Or in, earn, or in order to really, you know, to be embraced, to be reaccepted, to be accepted into the community and to demonstrate that he is indeed in good faith. Like what, 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 what would be the steps that he ought to take to do that? In other words, for a guy to stand up and say, you know what, I changed my mind, it's all good. Is that too easy? Do, does he need to do something else? What are the steps? So the good news is, the good news is that um, Judaism has a lot to say about this. And I want to put this conversation and, and this discussion in a little bit of context. And what I'm saying is not... I'm not saying anything definitive, but just for a little bit of background and context. We live in a world, in a society today, that leans heavily into what many have coined cancel culture. What is cancel culture? Cancel culture means that if somebody does something wrong, we, we um, uh, berate them and we call them out and ultimately cancel. That's it. They're trafe. They're terrible, they're horrible, we gotta get rid of them, they're out. So our heroes turn into villains very quickly. That's the way, that's the trend of society. It's been like this for a while now. We love national pastime. It used to be America's pastime was baseball, then maybe football. Now it's uh, building people up and tearing them down. We love it. Oh my gosh, nothing gives people a thrill like watching, watching a celebrity or somebody famous or somebody we know crash and burn. It's a problem that <laughs> we like this. I don't mean we, present company excluded, but it's nonetheless part of our society. We're very quick to judge and punish and ostracize. So we'd be forgiven that our approach to this guy would be, Trafe, terrible. What you did, my friend, is unconscionable. Don't even try to make nice. But there's a different perspective um, perhaps that we might adopt. In other words, the question is, is this approach the, the way that's advocated in Jewish values or in Jewish ethics and in Jewish law? What does Judaism say about sin and forgiveness? How does one make amends? Is it by just saying, I'm sorry? Is it through action? Or what, what is involved with making amends? Can one make amends for anything? Or is it a little bit more complicated? As we'll see, Judaism has a radical take on all of this, and the conversation is about to get extremely real. You see, the Hebrew word for personal restoration and personal rehabilitation is, of course, as we know, the word teshuva. Teshuva means to pivot away from the negative and turn toward the positive. Teshuva is achieving personal and spiritual rehabilitation, and Jewish law is very clear on the matter. Tshuva is always possible. Let's take a look at text number two. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. 
Um, you have it in your books. It's page 41. Okay. Chuva for all from Maimonides. Let's ask Sarah. Sarah, you up to reading? Text sure. number two. Okay, thanks. Teshuva atones for all sins. Even if one was wicked their entire life and did Teshuva at the last moment, their wickedness is no longer held against them. This is the meaning of the verse, a wicked person will not stumble due to their wickedness on the day they do Teshuva for it. Thank you. So it says in Ezekiel, what a powerful verse. That the wicked will not stumble due to their wickedness on the day they do tshuva. Tshuva atones for all. So there's really, and again, this is from Maimonides, Laws of Tshuva. And he gets it, of course, from classic Jewish thought, the mission of the Talmud, and other, other classic sources. The point here is, and there are really three big ideas in this text. Number one, tshuva is for everything, no matter what the sin or indiscretion. Again, tshuva atones for all sins. All sins means all sins. Nothing is excluded from this. Number two, teshuva is for everyone, no matter who the person is. Again, even if one was wicked their entire life. In other words, the most hardened criminal can do teshuva. It's not, it's not a contradiction. So teshuva is for all sins, for everything, and it's for every person, no matter what they did. And the third point is, teshuva can happen at any moment including the last moment. So the, in this first two, the first two lines or so of Maimonides, we have three major ideas that are very radical. Teshuva is for everything and for everyone and at any time. That is a very strong position on, uh, on personal rehabilitation. In other words, Judaism believes in the possibility of human beings to turn themselves around and to correct negative behavior, to correct any negative behavior they may have committed. It's like, do we look at a person and look at their failures and declare them permanently broken and worthy of being ostracized? We deem them beyond repair. That's one option. Second option is we take a more honest, compassionate, and hopeful view of the person, and we see them as flawed perhaps, but correctable. Those are two ways that you can look at a person. Somebody does something wrong. Maybe somebody does a lot of things wrong. <laughs> Do you say, well, that's it. They're done. They're finished. They're messed up. That's it. They're out. Or do you say, they've done a lot of negative things, but there's still hope. There's still the possibility of correction. Judaism will always take the latter approach. Judaism will always say, yesh tikva, there's still hope. There's still hope that a person can turn themselves around. And I know what you're thinking. Even so and so. We don't need to go extremes, right? It's not about so and so. We can think about, we can think about in normative situations. Yeah, people that do things that are wrong. Judaism says they can turn it around. We believe they can turn it around. We trust that they will turn it around. Teshuva, Rambam says, Maimani says, is for anything, by everyone, at any time, even the last moment of their life. It's always possible to achieve personal restoration. It's an unbelievable, hopeful uh, perspective. And as we'll see tonight, it creates an incredible ripple effect that filters down into, into criminal law itself. So, but before we get there, so now we know that 
according to Judaism, personal rehabilitation, or shall we say personal restoration, is possible. But the question is, how is it done? What's, what are the steps involved in doing teshuva, in making amends, in turning oneself around? So we know that it's possible, but how do you do it? So our tradition gives us a five-step program for personal rehabilitation. And it's really important. Five steps. It's, um, is it in the book? Let me just double check to see if it's in the book or not. Um, it is in the book. Figure 2.2. I'm not going to use the exact language of the book. On page 42, figure 2.2. Um, I'm going to share it and then I'll show the chart on the screen. Step number one. Step number one for personal change is stop the negative behavior. Nothing will change if the negative behavior is still going on. That's the, um, that's the rule of thumb. If you're still involved in the negative behavior, shuva cannot begin until that stuff stops. That make sense? You can't make amends if you're still, doing, if you're still committing the, the indiscretion. Number one, stop the offense. And part of that is and resolve to not do it again. So you stopped it and you're not going to do it again. Step one. Step number two is a feeling of regret and remorse for the, for, the, for the prior negative activity. So there's like an internal sense of regret and remorse for having done the negative, having committed that indiscretion. That's step two. Step number three. In cases where a person has harmed someone else, for example, theft, okay, somebody stole something from someone else, step three would be making financial restitution to the victim. So if you stole something, at this point, you would give it back. You would make restitution. That's step three. Step four is, again, when, when, when one harmed another person, it's asking forgiveness from the victim and working to appease the victim in any way possible. That's step four. Finally, step five, which is a very interesting step, is what we call vidui, which means a verbal confession of the indiscretion. It's verbally confessing and declaring the resolution to not do it again, making that declaration before God. It's not about um, declaring it before human beings. It's declaring, verbalizing it, standing before God, standing you know, between ourselves and God in a private space, verbally saying, this is what I did, this is the mistake that I made, and I'm not going to do it again, verbalizing it. So again, in short, step one, stop the commission of the negativity. Stop doing the bad thing. Don't do it again. Step two, feel regret. Step three, pay the restitution. Step four, make amends and ask forgiveness and appease the other, the other guy. And step five, verbally declare this, verbally confess before God. All right, now I'm going to share with you the image on the screen or the image in the book. Um, as you see here, step one is resolution not to reoffend. Step two is remorse for the offense. Step three is restitution for financial damages. Step four is appeasement of the victim. And step five is verbal confession to God and statement of remorse and resolution for the future. Those are your five steps of teshuva. Now, here's my question. I'll leave these up here. Um, you know, 
It's hard to know when someone else did all this stuff. But if a guy like Segeti does this, if he resolves not, never again to issue hateful or anti-Semitic statements or, or engage in actions like that, if he feels bad about what he did, if he makes restitution for any damages that he's caused, that's a big one, step three. If he appeases the victims of his hateful rhetoric, and by appeasement it means he has to go to them, and he has to make declarations and ask forgiveness and that sort of thing. And then if he verbally confesses before God, at that point he's deemed to have done teshuva. Again, there's no such thing as teshuva police. No one's walking around and saying, oh, where are you up to in your steps? Where are you up to? You know, did you step one, step two, step three? It's not really up to anyone else. So we don't know what Zagetti did or didn't do. I mean, as a community, it would be helpful to know what he's done to kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, make amends and restitution and that sort of thing for the, for the, for the, for the harm that he has caused in the past. Um, but if he's trying to speak, like just going back to our case study, if he's going to a Chabad in Montreal, right, he's flying there, to try to speak to the community and speak on behalf of love and tolerance and, you know, he's speaking out against anti-Semitic hate. You know, maybe that's his way of publicly making amends for what he did. It's his way of flipping it for the positive. It's using his power of rhetoric for the good instead of for the evil. So who's to say that that's not part of a sincere tshuva experience? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. But, but this is how Judaism would look at it. Judaism would say, number one, we believe that tshuva is possible. Anyone having committed any offense at any time can turn it around. That's point number one. That's radical. Point number two, how do you turn it around? Five steps. Five steps. Drop the bad behavior. Regret. Feel the remorse. Make the victim whole again. Restore goodwill with the victim. Get, get that relationship repaired. And manifest the resolution in words. When we sincerely work these steps, we've restored and rehabilitated ourselves according to Judaism. Okay. Make sense? Let me check in with you guys. Questions or comments thus far? Yes, Howard. Hold on, Howard. I think you might be muted. Hold on. Let's ask you to unmute. Let's see. Did we get you in? All right, Alex, in the meantime, jump in. So let's take this to the extreme. Yeah. How would you think or approach men like Putin mm. or Hitler? Right. I mean, where, where, where do we stand on this? Yeah. Yeah, those are the extremes. Uh, that would be hard for me to answer. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, uh, Hitler, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, he's the, the first guy that you think, at least I think of, is like, okay, Rambam, are we even talking about a guy like Hitler? Like, it's the first, the extreme that I go to. I don't know about anyone else. And I, I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it. But I'll say this. Without, thinking of the, without getting distracted by the exception, I think the, the far normative, you know, the, the much more frequent situations that we encounter in life are people that, you know, do bad things. We all do bad things on some level. Do bad things. The question is, is there hope? And the answer is, 
we believe there's hope. At any moment, the person can turn it around. A guy like that, I mean, I don't even know how you make amends for that. Part of the step of truth is making amends, asking for forgiveness. I mean, six million. That's, I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't fathom the scale of that shuva. So you ask, is it possible to answer your question? I, I would say theoretically it's possible, but practically speaking, I don't know how you possibly scale shuva up to such a degree. Are you with me on that? That's, to me, that's where, that's where the block kicks in. Like, how do you scale shuva so to I, that? I see how this works for petty crime. Yeah. Easily excusable. Give a second chance, whatever. Right. Um, but let's go to the middle somewhere here where we have people that are incarcerated that are mentally ill. Right. On medication. Even on medication, they're, cri- they're just criminally insane, I, I, however you want to define it. Um, what, what do you do with that part of the population? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. You know, I think I mean, you, we may have d- studied together the, the previ- a previous JLI course called yeah. Crime and Consequence. And, you know, that course advocated for, you know, to whatever extent uh, to, to include rehabilitative measures. And obviously health is a key factor in that. Mental health and, you know, uh, uh, medication, counselors, guidance, um, therapy, whatever is required, whatever is necessary to help individuals, um, and then you go from there. I, I don't know that I have an answer for that, but there's a perspective. The perspective is to try to encourage someone to get to a better place. But you're right, in, in many cases, it's going to require a lot of other resources to get a person even to that place. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, I, in my mind, I don't see how teshuva works in all circumstances. I hear you. I hear you. And, and I think that that is up to the individual. I think what Maimonides is saying is that it's possible. Not that it's going to happen. Not that it's easy. Not that it's even reasonably feasible, but that it's possible. Because at the core we believe that if, if you know, given all the pieces in place, this can happen. And again, not to make it too outlandish, but th- this, is, this is a possibility. It's possible for a person to turn their life around. Is it going to happen? If they're not in the place where they can do that, then it may not happen now. Could it happen? It could happen. So I, th- I, th- I agree with you. Um, but I think even the notion that it's possible and that that would be the goal, the ideal, that itself is powerful. That itself is powerful. Um, Howard, jump in. I think you're unmuted. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Sure. Thank you, Kamai. Okay. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. Oh, I think. The question was, would you ever be open to accepting Sikhedi as a member of the That's a different standard as we learned last week and other. The standard for becoming a good Jew and good thing is different than just just like that. And then I move on to um, page 43. Um, Howard, you're cutting in and out a little bit. We can't, we can't hear I'm you. I'm sorry, okay. No, no worries. No, I, I, I think I heard so enough. My question, my question is whether the forgiveness has to be or the five steps applies to anything that somebody does. Great. But you start off, you have to be a Jew in good standing. 
Great question. Great question, great question. Good question. So I, I believe like this, that number one, the question with Segedi is, if, if he wants to present himself as a Jew in good standing, to be accepted or to be accepted as a Jew in good standing, so like what are the expectations? So again, not that we're the judge of, of anyone else, but for Segedi himself, Jewish law dictates what he's got to do. And this is true for all of us. It's true for you and me also. If we did something wrong, not if, we all do something wrong, right? When we do something wrong, so there's steps that we need to take. We need to, number one, not do it. Number two, feel bad about doing it. Number three, if it's something that harms someone else, make restitution. Ask for forgiveness. Verbalize it before God. Then that's, what's, that's what truth is. So as far as what it takes to become a member of the Jewish community, good standing, for a guy like that, maybe it will require working this, these steps, perhaps. Now, again, not that anyone should, should necessarily be judging anyone else, but by nature we judge, and this would be a good demonstration of that process, number one. Number two, not every case is going to have all five steps. If it's, something that we, if it's something in our relationship between us and God, then it only requires steps one, two, and five. The idea of financial restitution and asking for forgiveness from the other party is only when we've hurt someone else, like another human being. But when it's indiscretions between us and God, it's, it's down from five steps to three steps, steps one, two, and five. And depending on the specific situation, the steps may vary. But the point overall is that there's a process by which human beings can get to a better place and do tshuva. Tshuva means return, but it also means restoration, repair, um, in a sense, renewal. Um, and in Judaism, it's even, for, it's even greater than that. It's not just getting back or restoring one's prior status. It's actually, tshuva is actually about surpassing the prior status. And I want to just dwell on this for just a moment because we have a lot of Case study, we have some case studies to get to and, and, and just brilliant law to, to, dis, to discuss. But one, one major idea that I wanted to mention right here is the goal of teshuva is not just to get a person back to where they were before they committed the offense, but to climb even higher than before. And the way we can understand this is by understanding the notion that when a person makes a mistake, in order to overcome the mistake, it requires them to summon a deeper energy than they would have had to summon had they not made the mistake in the first place. In other words, to overcome a challenge requires the summoning of a greater strength. And that's point number one. Point number two, the commitment of one who's failed and has come back is typically stronger than one who's never failed. Like somebody makes a mistake and says, you know what, I can't, I can't live with that mistake. I have to, I have to um, uh, correct that mistake and come back to a better place. Their commitment to good is typically now stronger than the one who's never slipped before. And the final point is typically our commitment, or sorry, appreciation for something is greater when you've lost it and found it again. So for all these reasons and more, the Baal Teshuvah, the one who's done Teshuvah or, or, or who is doing Teshuvah, is actually on a higher level than someone who's never done, who's never committed an offense before. So, and simply stated, and again, I know we're picking on Segeti, but it's just as a, our case study. A guy like Segeti, if he really changes himself, right, he really takes it to heart, 
stops hating others, embraces his Judaism, makes amends, etc., etc., etc. If he really does that, his commitment, right, his Jewish commitment or that experience could be stronger than one who never walked the dark side, so to speak. Because to overcome that, right, required supreme energy, supreme effort. He appreciates where he is now as opposed to where, where he's been before. And, and other reasons like that. That's why the Talmud says, it's one of the texts we're not going to read inside, that where the Baal Shuvah, where the penitent stands, not even a perfect tzaddik can stand. Someone who's come back from a negative place can, be, can stand on an even higher rung than one who's never dropped into that negative place to begin with. Not only, let me tell you the next radical idea. Not only is personal rehabilitation possible, according to Judaism, Jewish thought, it's the entire purpose of creation. Think about it. What did God do? God took a soul, a perfect, pristine, pure soul. He pairs it with a body, throws in an evil inclination, sends it into this world, the world filled with distractions and challenges, and says to the soul, good luck. <laughs> what is God thinking? What is God thinking? What's, what's the expectation? That we're going to be perfect? Trust me, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows the odds of us being perfect are zero. Zero chance of perfection. Not even possible. Again, it's not a surprise to God. God knows exactly what he's doing. He took us pure soul, put it into a body, threw in an evil inclination, put it into this world of, let's just say, distractions. Yeah? Gave us physical hardships and challenges. Right? And what do you expect, God? Right? God knows exactly what's going to happen. According to the mystics, according to the Kabbalists, according to Kabbalah, the reason why God does this to the soul is precisely for us to stumble and fail and to pick ourselves back up and to engage in the process of personal rehabilitation. Because engaging in the process of personal restoration lifts the soul to a greater place than it was before this journey, this descent into this world. Because having gone through, having gone to hell and back, one becomes stronger than had one never been in that negative place. That's the truth of life. So someone who's faced challenges due to their own mistakes and has rebounded is a stronger person than one who never was challenged in the first place, which is an incredibly powerful perspective on the idea of personal rehabilitation and counter to counter to, to cancel culture. Cancel culture says that if someone makes a mistake, they're out. What does Judaism say? Person makes a mistake, welcome to the club. Mazel tov, you're human, great. The question is now, will you pick yourself back up? The question is not, you fell. The question is, did you pick yourself back up? That will fall is inevitable. We're human. King Solomon writes, There is no righteous person on the face of the earth who will only do good and not make a mistake. It's not possible. King David, Solomon's father, wrote, Who can know, who can fathom the errors that we human beings make? We all make mistakes. And I, I know I'm using a soft word, mistakes. It could be a mistake, 
could be, you know, a, 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 tra- a violation of the law, could be something even worse, right? There's, there's, a, there's, a, large, there's a large window of, uh, within that realm of, of, of doing the, the not-so-right thing. Nonetheless, the overarching perspective of Judaism is that everybody, at any time, for anything, can turn it around. Not that it's guaranteed, not that it's easy, not that it won't require other resources, but it's possible for everyone to turn themselves around. And in doing so, it, that is the purpose of their being. It's the purpose of creation, purpose of why we're all here, is to pick ourselves back up from those moments that we've fallen. So, in short, not only is, restor- is personal rehabilitation possible, it's the ideal in Judaism. It's the purpose of creation. And it puts us, when we go through that process, it puts us on a higher status. Not that we're ranking, but it, 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 it adds depth and incredible light to the individual and to their soul. So, this is a Jewish value. This is a divine value. The value of tshuva, personal rehabilitation, and it's reflected in Jewish law in a stunning way. So to help guide this conversation forward, I want to ask you the following question. And this is actually in the book. I'm going to toggle the book over here. Um, this is going to be page 46, exercise 2.2. What can, legal, what can the legal system do to encourage and assist offenders to rehabilitate themselves. Um, Alex brought this up before. We discussed this a little bit, but this is an open question. What can the legal system do to encourage and assist offenders to rehabilitate themselves? What do you think? What can a, ju- what can a legal system do to encourage, essentially, teshuva? I, I think, in, most importantly, is we have to educate, or at least teach a skill. I think a lot Good. of people in our jails are uh, unskilled, and there there has to be hope. They, you know, why they're in there, that during this time, you know, let them learn a skill, so when they come out, they have something to offer. Excellent. And and we have to, as a society, also be willing to employ these people. You know, we can't. Uh, you know, there's some you have to take some risk because if if we're if we're on the outside and they come out they're looking for work and we see that they've spent time in jail and it's an immediate disqualification um you know we're destroying that that hope that they have right excellent all all good points all three good points i will add also that in in the united states and in other places there are program programs put in place in prisons that will help um you know train in, uh, train prisoners and um, you know other sorts of rehabilitation programs that are incentivized with early release. If you part- participate in the program, then you'll get an early release. And these are all very good things. But Jewish law goes much further than, than all of the above. And this is really what I want to drop on you guys tonight. It's an unbelievable idea. Jewish law goes much further than just education and rehabilitation programs or vocational help, which I don't want to discount. Those are very important. 
But not only does Jewish law seek to help offenders who have been apprehended, but it seeks to encourage offenders to come clean in the first place. Again, it's not just that once a person has been, you know, incarcerated, that the law steps in, a law ought to stop in and, and, and see what it can do to help, you know, to help rehabilitate the individual. It's more than that. Rehabilitation, the idea of, of facilitating tshuva begins in Judaism with encouraging the offender to come clean, essentially to cop to the crime in the first place. Judaism is deeply committed to opening the door to those who have committed wrongdoing to encourage them to turn around their life and to start the process of rehabilitation. Judaism understands a simple truth about human beings. If we make it difficult for a person to do the right thing, they're much less likely to do it. If you put a bunch of hoops in front of an offender, we're essentially slamming the tshuva door in their face. And that's the last thing we want to do. We want to incentivize the offender to embark on the journey of teshuva restoration. So Jewish law does something, again, pretty radical. It makes it highly manageable for the offender to make amends. And the way we're going to see this is by honing in, focusing in on one area of Jewish criminal law, specifically the laws of theft. Okay, so again, just to summarize what I just said, because this is really the key to tonight's class. If somebody commits a crime, so the next step is, ideally, the next step is tshuva. Fix it. Make amends. Get to a better place. The problem is, if we make it too impossible to do that as a society, then we're slamming the door in someone's face. Instead of making amends, they're just going to hide. They're just going to run away. They're just going to, you know, uh, try, to, try to get away with what they've done. But if we make it reasonable to embark on the path of restoration, now we've opened the door to a path of rehabilitation, and that's a good thing. So we'll see how this plays out vis-a-vis -vis the laws, uh, criminal laws of theft in Judaism. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to use a case study. This is not a real case, but it's, uh, it's a scenario. I'll read the scenario. We have a bunch of questions on the scenario, and I want, uh, we're going to take the temperature of the room, and this will be a launching point for this conversation. Okay, here we go. Case study, a fictional case study, page 47. I will read this. Mark was a career criminal with a lengthy history of robberies. One of his many victims was Jack, the owner of a New York construction company. Mark successfully stole a range of construction materials from Jack's business. Among the stolen items, there was an expensive central air conditioning system and a kitchen cabinet set. After lifting them from Jack's property, Mark assembled and installed them in his own home. After decades of crime, Mark's dormant conscience began to flicker to life. Eventually, he resolved to turn over a new leaf, abandon his life of crime, and pursue an honest job. Mark came clean about his thefts and set about making restitution for them. He tracked down Jack, who had by then retired to his new home in Los Angeles. Explaining the circumstances, Mark wished to provide reimbursement, 
But Jack insisted that the actual stolen items be returned to him, asserting that it was his right to receive their physical return and to not make, to, and to not make do with monetary substitutes. Jack, Jack's demand raises a series of questions. Okay? Before we ask the questions, I want to make sure the scenario is clear. We have two people, Mark and Jack. Mark is the criminal. Jack is the victim. Mark steals, among other things, a, an AC system, an HVAC system, and a set of kitchen cabinets. He installs them in his own home. Eventually, he comes clean. And he fi- tracks down Jack and says, Jack, I'm sorry, I stole your stuff. I have your AC system, and I have your cabinets. I want to pay you back for it. And Jack says, nope, send them to me. <laughs> send them to me. It's in his house. It's installed in his home. What's, what's a thief to do? Take a look at the questions. Again, these are questions that will get us on this conversational path. Question number one. The air conditioning system was intact, but its removal from Mark's house would require him to rip out walls and ceilings, causing him significant expense. Should Mark be allowed to keep it and instead reimburse Jack for its value, yes or no? What do you guys think? Let me check in. Should he be allowed to reimburse the money or should he be forced to, um, to pull out the system? What do you think? Should he be allowed to reimburse with money? Yes or no? Yes? Yes? yes. yes. Anybody say no that he has to return the actual system? No. Okay. All right. Back inside. Question number two. Mark invested time and effort in assembling the kitchen cabinets in his home. As a result, the assembled cabinet set was evaluated to be of greater value than that of the unassembled raw materials he stole. Can Mark simply pay the value of the original unassembled set? Yes or no? Again, the original set is packed flat. Now he built them. That, that's more money because he put money into building them. So can he, can he pay the value of the original unassembled set or does he have to pay or does he have to return the full, the full cabinets or the full amount of the, of, of the built cabinets? What do you guys think? Can he pay yes. the that value of the original? Yes? Yes. I and got it, a question. Yes. How does the Ghana have the right to demand or tell the victim how he's going to, you know, to, to show up? Great question. Great question. Good. But that's what we're exploring right now. In other words, we're not saying he has the right. We're saying that he wishes, right? He, the Ghanif wishes, he wants to send them the money instead of the AC system because it's going to be a, a pain in the neck. He wants to give them the value of the original cabinets, the, the original um, unbuilt cabinets as opposed to the value of the finished cabinets. That's what he wants. The question is, do, do, we, do we give him what he wants? Or do we say, Mr. Ghanif, Thank you very much. You're going to do what we tell you, right? I, what's, what's the law? This is a way to get the conversation going. Now, let's continue with question number three. If Mark is indeed required to return the set, should he be entitled to some compensation for the increased value of the assembled cabinets? Imagine, listen to this. He built the cabinets, and let's say he sends the full cabinets back. He says to the guy, look, I stole from you unfinished cabinets. I sent you back finished cabinets. So you know what? Give me $200 because I built your cabinets for you. Should he, be, get, should he get that reimbursement from, from the victim? Yes or no? Any yeses? Yes. And, and he knows? Yes. 
Yes, no's? Okay. All right, we're getting some yeses and no's. We get a mixed bag. Good, next question. Question four. Additionally, returning the actual stolen goods would entail significant transportation costs. Whose responsibility is it to pay the transportation bill from New York to L.A.? Is it Mark the Ghanif or Jack the victim? Who thinks the Ghanif should pay for the transportation fees? Who thinks the victim should pay for the transportation fees? Victim. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Should the fact that Mark unilaterally stepped forward and confessed his misdeed affect his responsibility to make restitution in any way? Yes or no? The fact that he copped to it, the fact that he was never caught, but he admitted to it, should that affect his responsibility toward restitution or no? He's got to make full restitution. What do you think? Okay. All right. Let's, um, let's jump in. Because as we'll see, Judaism has a lot to say about this. Crazy stuff. We're about to get into wild stuff. But here's what you need to know. Remember this. Remember this. In Judaism, there's one objective. Well, okay, there's more than one objective. But there is an objective, which is to help the sinner, to help the criminal do teshuva. We want, we want to put a path a possible path of restoration, of rehabilitation in front of this guy. We don't want to block him out and make it so impossible to do tshuva that he's like, ah, forget it. I'm just going to live a life of crime and or never admit to the crime. We want to make it, we want to encourage tshuva. Does that make sense? That's what we want to encourage. At the same time, we don't want to let people off the hook either. So we're, we're trying to straddle a line here in Judaism. So the first thing we want to do when thinking about the case of Mark the thief and Jack the victim, he stole the AC system he put in his house, he stole cabinets that he installed in his house, and the question is now, what happens? First thing we need to say, the first thing we need to know is that Jewish law has a very strong preference for, in general, for the thief returning the actual item that he stole as opposed to paying for its value. Okay, Jewish law has a strong preference for thieves returning the actual item that's stolen. Take a look at this next text. This is text number six from Maimonides. I'm going to read this. A thief is obligated to return the exact object that he stole. As the verse states, they must return the object that they have stolen. If the stolen object was lost or altered, the thief must pay its value. So of course, if the stolen object is lost, it's no longer there, or if it's altered in a way that's permanently transformed into something else, so then you pay the va- the thief pays the value, but otherwise, the thief needs to give back the exact object. Here's where it gets crazy. Here's where it gets crazy. Even if a person stole a beam, and used it in the construction of a home. Scriptural law would require that the thief tear down the entire building to return the beam to its owner because the beam itself is extant and unchanged. Again, I'm going to give you this example. Fellow steals a beam. What's a beam? 
big piece of wood. He doesn't cut it. He doesn't turn it into a chair or a cabinet. No, 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 no. This guy, the whole beam, he puts it into his, into his building, to his home. Years later, it's time to do tshuva. It's time to pay up. This guy, either he gets busted or he cops to it himself. It doesn't make a difference. Yeah, he has to return the stolen item. It's part of tshuva. Step number, step number three of tshuva is, uh, returning, is, is making restitution. And in this case, he can't pay for the beam. The beam exists. So what does Rambam say? Maimani says, the guy has to pull, has to take apart his own house, pull out the beam, and return the beam back to the victim. Does that sound radical to you? Yeah, a little radical? It's radical, Rabbi, and also, to me, it uh, flies in the face of um, wanting to encourage someone to make teshuva. Which is why rabbinic law is different than scriptural law, which we'll see in a moment. Maimonides just told us what scriptural law is. In other words, from the original OG law, what should be. David, you're 100% right, and that's what we're going to get to. That's the punchline. But so far, what we've seen is that theoretically, according to Jewish law, you should take apart the house pull out the beam and give it back. Why is it so important to get back the original item? Well, number one, the item still belongs to the owner. It's his, to the victim. Return it as is. Number two, returning the actual item is the truest form of restitution. It's literally restoring that which he stole. Number three, it's not good for the thief, for his own conscience, to, to look at his house and see the beam that he stole. It, if he's really trying to do tshuva, you want to pro- probably remove all traces of that. So that's why, for these reasons, a more Jewish biblical law says, scriptural law, as Rambam says, says that the thief must return the actual item. However, however, now, one second, one second. Based on this, so far, based on this, how would we rule in the case of Mark and Jack, where Mark has stolen the AC system, installed it in his home, and decades later, whatever, I don't know if it's still working decades later, but some point later, wishes to make amends and restitution and give back the theft. Yeah, and we asked, should he rip it, out of his bill, rip it out of his home or should he just give back the money? According to what we learned so far from Maimonides, should rip it out of his home like the beam. You take apart the house, pull out the beam, take apart the house, pull out the AC system, give it back to Jack. That's the way it should be. No, I would rather have them reimbursed me for a brand new state-of-the-art AC system, right. not the one he ripped off five years ago. <laughs> right, that now has much less mileage left on the uh, on the on the old uh, on the old tires. I agree with you. I agree with you. Maybe the AC system is not a great example because it is something that diminishes with use, and it wouldn't actually be a fair compensation. The unit itself wouldn't be fair. So you're right. It's actually not not the best example that JLI used over here. But that being said, in concept. Not considering that point that I think is very salient. Otherwise, in concept, it seems like scriptural law would say, rip it out of the house. But here's where, and this is what David was saying, here's where rabbinic law modifies biblical law, which is very rare. It's only possible, by the way, in monetary issues. The rabbis have legislation with monetary issues to, to modify things slightly. Take a look at what the sages enacted. This is incredible. From the Mishnah, Trate Gittin. Rabbi Yochanan ben Gudgada testified that there is a rabbinic enactment, listen to this, regarding the case of a thief that built a stolen beam into a building. 
The victim of theft of the theft is only entitled to monetary compensation. Although scripturally he's entitled to the beam, but rabbinically, rabbinic enactment says, uh uh-uh, you're only going to get money, monetary compensation. Why? Says the Mishnah. This was enacted for the benefit of penitence. In other words, this is, in the Hebrew, it's called takanas hashavim. This is in order to encourage people to do teshuva, as we've been saying this entire class. In order to open the door, in order to not put any hoops in front of the person to engage in the process of teshuva and personal rehabilitation and restoration and restitution, we tell the person, don't worry, you won't have to rip apart your house. Just give the money. So biblically, he should give the AC system. He should give the beam. Rabbinically, the rabbis say, Hefker, Bezdin, Hefker. Bezdin, the, the Jew, Jewish law, Jewish courts, the rabbinic courts have the power over money to, to move things around. Jewish rabbinic edict is, don't, don't disrupt this guy's home. He's never going to come clean. He's never going to admit to the crime if you make it too impossible for him. Take a look at how Rashi explains this, Mishnah. Take a look at Rashi, right here. Text 8. If we require thieves to destroy their buildings for the sake of returning the actual stolen beam, they will be discouraged from doing tshuva. If you tell the criminal, oh, by the way, (laughs) by the way, if you ever come clean, your life is over. Guess who's not coming clean anymore? The thief. If you make it too hard for the thief to to fix things, he's never going to fix it. What we want to do again, it's psychology. Straight up psychology. You want the thief to make amends because you care about the thief not being a thief anymore? You want the thief to turn his life around? Open the door to the guy. Don't close it in his face. You won't have to pull apart your house for the beam. You won't have to pull apart your house for the AC system. Don't worry, you're fine. Just give back the money. Rabbinic edict moves things away from the original biblical law. Again, rare instances when it comes to monetary matters, the rabbis had the pow- have the power to do this. And rabbinic law says, just like they have the power to enact fines and other form of financial penalties and compensations, they have the power to enact this edict, also this financial edict. And they say to the victim, Mr. Victim, you're not getting your beam. It's not happening. You're going to get money, not the beam. You know why? We care about that guy. We care about that guy. And we know that if he's a thief, and he knows that he's got that beam, and he knows that he's going to have to rip apart his house, then even 20 years later, when he's, when he, when he's remorseful, and he wants to apologize, he won't, because he likes his house. If we make it too hard for him, he's never going to do tshuva. So what do we do? We make it a little bit easier on him. Not that we, give, not that we, not that we, um, we, uh, we let him go scot-free. No, no one said that. No one said we let him off the hook. We're just making it feasible. We're giving him a reasonable shot to make amends. Okay. Rabbi? Yes. Wouldn't it also be like, you know, we say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's not a literal thing. It's to pay a, a compensation Correct. That's, that's equivalent. Correct. So you would do the same thing with returning the beam or the air conditioning system or something else. It would be the same. Right. And it's certainly according to rabbinic law. The, the, the Talmud says that based on the scriptural language regarding theft, that says return the item that was stolen, it seems like you got to return the item. But rabbinically, the rabbi said, 
Forget about it. Well, listen, if you still have it and it's no big deal, then yes. But if it's inside a house, if it's stuck inside, forget about it. Don't worry about it. You're fine. So, and again, I saw the, I saw a text pop up. Do you ignore the victim who cursed the God to tshuva? We're not ignoring the victim. Again, the victim is being made whole. Why is the victim being made whole? If the beam is worth $1,000, he gets $1,000. If the AC system is worth $10,000, he's getting ten grand. you are not shorting the victim on the restitution. What you're doing, though, is you're not requiring some sort of Herculean effort on behalf of the, of the, of the ganef, of the thief, you know, to, to, to pull it out and to do tshuva. In other words, if you think about it this way, if the beam is worth a, a very expensive beam, let's say, is worth $1,000. I have no idea. Let's say it's $1,000. So the two options, two options are either pay $1,000 or you got to get back the beam. To, to get back the beam in the house, you have to demolish the house and rebuild the house to the tune of $200,000. Which criminal is ever going to admit that he stole the beam if he knows that it's going to be $200,000 to get that beam out? It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. So the rabbi said, forget the $200,000. Pay the thousand for the beam. We're done. The AC guy, you're going to rip out all the walls. You'll be 25,000 in the hole for a 10,000 system. So you know what? He's never going to do it. Even if he, even if he feels regret and remorse, he feels terrible about it. It's eating him up inside. He's not going to admit it because he doesn't have $25,000 lying around in cash. So you know what? Let him pay the 10000 for the HVA system. Gnoksha finished. The victim gets his money. He gets restitution. The thief has a path to operate, and everyone's happy. All right. So, so Mark, um, let, I want to get to a few more cases. So let's just, let's hold questions for a few minutes. So now Mark, based on this, has a bit of an easier path to tshuva with the AC system. Okay, now he's got just the money for the AC system, doesn't have to pull it out. But what about the kitchen cabinets, as our narrative continues? The kitchen cabinets, if you recall, he stole, an un, he stole a set of kitchen cabinets that was not built yet. And he took, <laughs> never, he took the time to build the cabinets in his own house. He put in time and effort, right? He stole unassembled cabinets, and he now has assembled cabinets that now raises their value. So who should get the increased value. Jewish law has something to say about this, and it's wild. Listen, I just want to say this. I, I use the word intentionally several times in the opening of today's class, radical. Okay, if you don't think it's radical yet, take a look at text number nine. All right, here we go. Text number nine, the, the Talmud says, enhancement of the actual body of the stolen item belongs to the thief. <laughs> Who gets the extra value of the cabinets? The thief. Hey, after all, he built it, right? He built the cabinets. He should gain the reward of, uh, of building the cabinets. So I'm giving you a scenario here. This guy steals a set of kitchen cabinets. The set of kitchen cabinets unfinished is worth, uh, unassembled. The value, the retail value is, or whatever, the value is $5,000. Built, it's $7,000. Okay, so he built it. Now there were 7,000. So now the question is, okay, one second. I mean, there's another question, does he have to rip them out of his kitchen? That goes back to the previous case. But, you know, if he's making restitution for the, for the money, 
Does he give the guy 7,000 or 5,000? Does he give the guy the value of the unassembled cabinets or the value of the assembled cabinets? Or in a case where he, let's say, he wants to give the cabinets to the guy, um, can he say to the guy, I'll give you the cabinets, but you have to give me back $2,000 because I built them for you. It's kind of chutzpah, right? It's, it's like the ultimate chutzpah to say, for the thief to say that I built your cabinets for you, so therefore you owe me money. But in essence, if he's given the built cabinets, who gets that added value? The Talmud says the thief gets that added, the thief gets that value. The thief gets the credit. That's the way it is. It's kind of wild. It's kind of wild, but that's, uh, that's halacha. Jewish law operates on a bit of a different, different wavelength. And the reason, again, the reason, again, is because we want to encourage the thief to come clean. We tell the thief, you'll come clean, and you're not going to take a loss on, on the effort that you put in to, uh, to enhance the item. So if you enhance the item due to your work, but we're not, by the way, we're not talking about a case where you steal a bar of gold and gold goes up in value, and now you want that value back from the guy. No, you got to give back the bar of gold, give back the gold, and you're done. No, no, you stole the bar of gold that was worth 5000 Now it's worth $7,000, you are going to tell the guy, okay, here's your gold back, but give me $2,000. That's not how it works. We're talking about an improvement that's made by the thief. Are you with me on this? Like the guy who steals the unassembled cabinets and builds them, and now the cabinets are worth more because they're built. So now the guy says, well, I, I did the work, so I should, get some, I should get some reward for that. So again, to encourage the thief to come clean, we give that value, we give that compensational value to, we credit to the thief. Take a look at how the Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Arach, the Code of Jewish Law, um, articulates this in text number 10. If the stolen item was altered, but the change is reversible, such as stolen earth fashioned into bricks, the thief cannot keep it and it must be returned. So let's say again, let, let me stop here for a second. So this, the thief steals earth and he makes it into bricks. So, I mean, you could break up the bricks back into earth. You could like smash them. But right now they're bricks and bricks are more valuable than earth. And at this point, the thief has to return the bricks. However, the added value of the item does, not, does belong to the thief. And the original owner must pay the difference. So the thief gives the guy back bricks instead of earth. And the victim has to pay the thief for the added value. Of course, if the victim doesn't want the bricks, then he just pays for the earth. Sorry, then he, then he just collects money from the thief for the earth that he stole for that value, and the thief keeps the bricks. Either way, the thief gains the extra value, the added value for creating bricks out of earth. And again, the point here is that if you tell a thief that all the work you put into this, you're going to lose because you stole it, so you're going to lose it, that might be right. That might be justified. I might agree with that emotionally. But you know what? You're going to put a door in front of the thief for tshuva. You're going to be discouraging, not encouraging, discouraging the thief to come clean and say, you know what? I'm the ganif. I'm the guy. You're going to discourage him. We want to encourage people to do tshuva, people to come clean. We want to encourage people to get to a better path in life and not discourage them. So we say to this guy, Come clean, return the item. If you invested into it, we'll get, we'll get your investment back. You'll get that money back. But do tshuva and give back the stolen items. So in the case of the cabinets, 
to kind of crystallize and finalize this according to Jewish law. Mark stole unfinished, unassembled cabinets and built them. So he could send the cabinets back to Jack, and then Jack would send him money for the assembly, which again is crazy, but it's Jewish law. Or if Jack prefers, if the victim prefers, he could allow Mark to keep the cabinets and just, he would have, and Mark would just have to send Jack the money for the unassembled cabinets that he stole. In other words, either Mark sends Jack the $7,000 worth of cabinets and Jack sends Mark back 2,000 bucks for assembling them, or Mark keeps the cabinets in his home and pays the 5,000 back to the victim for the unassembled cabinets that he stole. Either way, it's the victim's prerogative at this point which to take, but the point, as long as it doesn't include um, or demand ripping up the guy's house, but otherwise it's his discretion. But the point is, we, we encourage the thief by telling the thief, essentially, in Jewish law, whatever improvements you made, whatever investment you made in that stolen item, you'll be able to pull it out. You'll be able to get that, that out. The item itself, the value itself, the item itself, you got to get back. But the improvements, what you did to it, you, you can keep that. That encourages the thief. Subtle ways to encourage the thief. Well, not so subtle. Monetize ways to encourage the thief to do the right thing. All right, what about the transportation costs? Who pays for the shipping? Let's say he wants to send them the cabinets cross-country. Who pays for the shipping from New York to L.A.? You want to send cabinets? It's going to cost money. It's going to cost money. I had to overnight documents from Atlanta to Los Angeles. You know, my son's in yeshiva in L.A., I had to overnight documents from Atlanta to Los Angeles. I called up FedEx. They wanted $101. I called up UPS. They wanted $65. Guess where I went? I'm just saying. This is, by the way, this is not, not sponsored by UPS or FedEx. Just and not trying to call out anybody. Just saying, you know, that these were the difference in, uh, in cost for an overnight little envelope situation. The point is, for one, for one piece of paper, it could be between $65 and $100. Imagine you're shipping cabinets. Maybe it's not overnight, but you're shipping boxes and boxes of ca- kitchen cabinets cross-country. It's going to cost a pretty penny. Who pays for it? Who pays for it? Once again, you'll be shocked at the radical approach of Jewish law. In, in U.S. law, in American law, who pays for all costs associated with restoration of the, with, uh, with restitution? Obviously, the thief, who else? The victim should pay. Why should the victim pay? Of course, the thief should pay. Any costs, any costs associated with the crime is paid by the criminal. Not in Jewish law. Prepare to be shocked. Take a look at this one, text number 11. Code of Jewish law. People that stole from others and confessed and confessed the theft are not required to pursue the owners in order to return the stolen items to them. The confessed thief may hold on to the item, notify the owner, and wait for them to come and collect it. Look at that. Look at that. Jewish law says that the thief doesn't have to get it back to the owner. It's the owner's responsibility to pick it up. Mr. Jack from California, you want your cabinets back? Make a plan, buddy. Make a plan. Ah, he's going to be out, you know, $1,000 of shipping. 
Okay, there's another option. You don't want to pay the, the, the shipping fee for the cabinets? Great. Then let Mark wire you the money to your bank account for five grand and we're done. But either way, the onus of getting it back, it does not lie on the thief, it lies on the victim. And again, that sounds crazy. Why are we putting this on the victim and not on the thief? The thief should be on the hook. But when you understand the values that drive Jewish law, the whole course, this whole course is understanding how Jewish values drive Jewish law. Jewish law says the victim pays, the victim arranges the shipping. Why? That's Meshuggah. You're victimizing the victim. That's crazy. Jewish law is driven by Jewish values. And the value is, the value is we want people to do the right thing. We want people to, to, to do tshuva. We want people to turn their life around. We want people to take the first step to personal and spiritual rehabilitation. And so we want to open up as many doors, make it as easy as possible for the thief to come clean. So you don't have to pull apart your house. You don't have to lose your investment. And you don't have to pay shipping cross-country. The other guy will figure it out. You'll wire it, Nook, today. Thank God for wiring. You can wire it, transfer it, Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, Bitcoin, Coinbase, Dogecoin, however you want to take care of it. NFT it, whatever you want. You can tweet and WhatsApp the money, I'm sure, at some point, maybe already, and make it happen instantly. Don't penalize the thief. If you make it too hard for the thief, the thief is encouraged to continue living a life of crime or hiding their life of crime. That's all you're doing. That's all you're doing. It reminds me of when we had Dan Ariely. Who was there when we had Dan Ariely? Dan Ariely, just brilliant, brilliant man. Duke University. Behavioral psychologist. This guy, Dan Ariely. So what happens? Cell phones, yeah, texting and driving. So the government says, oh, not good. People are texting while driving, accidents, it's terrible. We gotta, we gotta stop people from texting and driving. So what do they do? The most obvious decision is you make it illegal to text while driving. Guess what happens? Instead of holding your phone up here, while you're driving, so you can still see the road while you're texting. Now everyone's holding it, but the cops can see you. Now you hold the phone under your steering wheel. You're still texting, but now it's under your steering wheel. And now guess what? You're not looking on the road. What Dan really said is that when cities and states made texting and driving illegal, accidents actually increased. So I know what you're thinking. So what are you supposed to do? Just make it legal? Legalize texting while driving? The point is you have to be smart. You can stand on ceremony and say it's wrong and we're going to ban it. But what's the outcome? What's your, out what's, what, what's your desired outcome? And are you working toward that or against that? That's the question. Jewish law has an outcome that it seeks. The outcome is a favorable resolution for the victim and tshuva for the criminal. And Jewish law knows that if you make it impossible for the, for the criminal, then no one's going to win. The criminal is going to continue to commit or hide the crimes. 
and the victim will never see the money or the cabinets or the AC unit at all. All you're doing is making the criminal be more criminal by making it too difficult. So we say to the criminal, listen, buddy, listen, buddy, you won't have to rip apart your house. You'll be able to recoup your expenses and you won't have to pay for shipping. You ready? We're going to make it easy for you. That's Jewish law. One more radical thing. This, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost afraid to say this. I'm not really afraid. I'm just saying that. But it's, 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 this is so radical, it's, uh, it's really wild. Jewish law takes things one step further. And in some cases, encourages the victim, listen to this, to refuse accepting the restitution. In some cases, Jewish law will tell the victim, don't take it, don't take the money from the, from the criminal. Don't take, the, don't take restitution back. Why? To encourage the guy to come clean. If he knows that he can come clean with amnesty, yeah, if he knows that he can come clean and, 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 and not have to cough up whatever it is, then that is going to encourage even more people to get back on the right path. I know what you're thinking. But what kind of right path is it if he's, not, uh, if he's not doing any restitution? Okay, take a look. Take a look at text 12 from the Talmud. There was an incident, a real story, in which a certain person sought to perform teshuva. He wanted to come clean. His wife said to him, empty head. Maybe that's what they used to say back then. Empty head. Silly man. If you do teshuva, even the belt you're wearing is not yours. This guy was a thief. She says, if you're going to come clean now, we got nothing. The fellow refrained and did not do tshuva. At that time, the sages declared that if thieves wish to return what they stole, their victims should not accept it from them. You see that? I'm gonna, that line, that line. If thieves wish to return what they stole, the victims should not accept it from them. If the victims nevertheless do accept from the thieves, the sages are displeased with their conduct. That was the sage's response to the story of the fellow that did not do tshuva because he could not fathom the loss that he was about to, to, um, to endure. So what we see here is something unbelievable. Now there are caveats and, and disclaimers on this, which I'll share with you in a moment. But one thing is very important, and that is that in certain instances, Jewish law, the rabbis, will encourage us not to take back restitution so as not to slam the door in the criminal's face. That's only in certain situations which are delineated right here in text number 13. This is the Code of Jewish Law once again. When established thieves, career criminals for whom tshuva is difficult, wish to do tshuva on their own initiative, then if the stolen item is no longer extant, their victim should not accept compensation from them. This is to ensure that such thieves will not be deterred from doing teshuva. However, if the thieves insist that they wish to go beyond the letter of the law and pay compensation, the victims are not cautioned against accepting it. So let me explain what the criteria are for this situation. Number one, we're talking about career criminals for whom tshuva is difficult. Why? Because imagine a career criminal who wants to come clean, and if they have to pay restitution, they're going to get completely wiped out, and they're not going to be able to live. 
So now we're worried that the career criminal is never going to embark on the path of teshuva because it's just simply going to be too difficult. So in it, what, number one, criteria number one is a career criminal, career thief. Number two, criteria number two is they wish to do teshuva on their own initiative. If they got busted, no deal. It's only to encourage someone to do it on their own. So if a career criminal wants to make amends on their own initiative and the stolen items are no longer extant, they can't just give it back, they have to sell something to get the money to, to, to pay the, re, the restitution, then in th with those three caveats, career criminal, again, somebody who would, in, would, would endure a very serious loss, who wants to make amends on their own initiative, and the items are not there, in other words, they would have to sell in order to, restitute, to, to pay restitution, when, when those three factors exist, we encourage, we don't force, we encourage the victim to not take restitution. If the, the, if the, if the thief insists on paying restitution, not a problem, and the, fellow can, and the victim can take it, and that's not a problem. And um, in short, in short, again, this is very radical. In short, Jewish law gives some thieves under some circumstances, some conditions, an incredible out, encouraging victims not to demand restitution at all. And this, as mentioned, is due to one single objective, to encourage the good behavior and personal rehabilitation of the thief. Now, you and I can think of modern examples of, in U.S. law, where there are certain programs of amnesty that wish to encourage good behavior. Have you heard of the federal gun buyback programs? Yeah, illegal weapons, they buy back. Or have you heard of tax amnesty programs where the government or the state will say, you know what, if you owe taxes, we're not going to penalize you. No fees, no penalties, just give us back the money. So even in U.S. law, my point is, even in U.S. law, even in American law, there are some examples of trying to encourage the try of, of amnesty to uh, to let the to let the one who did something not so uh, not so kosher a little bit off the hook. But in truth, it's very different than Jewish law. And and I'll I'll end with this point: in U.S. law, those programs, whether it's a gun buyback program or a tax amnesty program, they're very utilitarian in their focus. Like the gun program is to get guns off the street, which is good, right? Get uh, illegal guns off the street. Um, and the tax amnesty program is designed, really, it's designed to get more money into the state or to the government, right? It's really, it's literally to get, to, to, to collect money. So what's better, to not collect money because the guy is avoiding it or to give them amnesty and collect at least the, uh, the principal amount? The, the, Option B is usually better because you're getting something. So that's, that's the agenda of US, in U.S. law. It's very pragmatic and utilitarian for the, for, the, for, the, for the item. We want guns off the street. We want money in, in, in our coffers. Judaism gives certain amnesties to thieves, not for the money and not for any other agenda, but for the sake of the well-being of the criminal him or herself. Are you with me on this? It's intended solely for the sake of the rehabilitation of the individual who committed the crime in the first place. 
Judaism is concerned with the spiritual, physical, with the well-being of that person. We don't want that person to be a criminal. We want them to be someone who did shuva about shuva. And so Judaism says, let's try to make the path toward shuva as smooth as possible. You won't have to demolish your house. You won't lose your investments. You won't have to pay shipping fees. And in some cases, the victim is going to be encouraged not even to take restitution. In doing so, one could say that Judaism is insensitive to the victim. That's one way to look at it. But in most cases, the victim, the victim is being made whole. By and large, not even by and large, what the agenda, what the, the, the entire motivation that drives these laws in Jewish criminal law is the single objective of helping an individual who has committed a wrong get back to a better place. We started today's class by talking about Segeti, the Hungarian anti-Semite who found out he was Jewish. We asked the question, you know, would you accept him as a member of the community in good standing? And how would he get to that place? And we had a discussion about that. We talked about the five levels, levels of tshuva, five steps, sorry, five steps of personal rehabilitation. But the bottom line is, Jewish law holds dear the value of people getting to a better place, not getting stuck in negativity. Judaism encourages us to turn our life around for the better and encourages us to try to encourage others to get their lives back to a better spot. When we see somebody struggling, we don't want to make it harder for them to do the right thing. We want to make it easier for them to do the right thing. So we encourage a thief to come clean. We make it easier for them to come clean. The agenda here is not to harm the victim. We don't want to victimize the victim again. What we want to do is move someone from a, straight, from a state of criminality and show them the possibility for a better future for themselves. So, that's why we make these provisions for a thief. And it speaks to Judaism's fierce belief in the inherent possibility for everyone to turn their life around toward a better place. May we internalize these values and seek the best for ourselves. If we're stuck in something negative, seek the best for ourselves. And we should seek the best for our fellow human beings. It's so easy to judge and to say someone committed a crime, they're a criminal, they're out, they're done. Arise, get away. That's the easy approach. The harder approach is to say they're still a human being. God sees potential. We can see potential. Let's create a system of law that honors that potential and tries to help to guide people along to a better path. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. I hope that these, uh, that these discussions were intriguing. I hope that you found this a little bit radical, but not too radical. Radical enough that you could still, uh, you could still relate. And I hope that uh, the ethics and the values as we can apply to our own lives, I hope that has come through loud and clear. All right, uh, we'll take questions. I'll t I'll, I'm here, I know I, I, I kind of made like a beeline toward the end, 
but I'll take questions or comments. We can discuss this. Um, quick announcement, next week's class is called Beyond Taking Offense. We all feel some degree of responsibility toward others, but how far does this responsibility actually extend? Is someone else's conduct and behavior any of our business? So join me next week as we explore Judaism's perspective on mutual responsibility toward would-be offenders and potential victims. You don't want to miss this conversation. All right, that's next week. Uh, questions or comments, I am available and open. All right, Howard, jump in. One question that you didn't answer is sure. what happens if the, if the wrongdoer doesn't have the ability to repay? Hmm, good. You're saying, what if there's never the ability to repay? What if they can't, uh, they just don't have it? Good, 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 good. I'm trying to see if we have this. I feel like it's in one of the classes in our course. Give me a second here. Yeah. In lesson number four, we talk about debt bondage and debtor's prisons, which was one ancient way of dealing with this problem, but not in Jewish law, not in Jewish law. In Jewish law, we don't, uh, we don't do that. What to do in that situation? Okay, we would have to come up with a reasonable solution. I will tell you this, that making it more possible for the person to get that money back would be in everyone's best interest. So in a previous course, I mentioned before crime and consequence, we spoke about the Jewish perspective on prisons. And, and I mentioned in that course that in Judaism, there wasn't really a prison system. You see, think about a guy like Bernie Madoff. Okay, I know, I know it's like a, he's a, a trigger for, for many of us. But think about a guy like Bernie Madoff, right? So he stole, he, he, you know, the Ponzi scheme, he ripped off, what was it, billions of dollars? Just an incredible amount of money. And how much restitution was made? Drop in the bucket. Drop in the bucket, yeah. I, relatively little of restitution was made, right? A lot of people lost a lot of money. And, and, and he was locked up in prison. So again, I'm not, I, I'm not advocating anything concretely, but, but just dream with me. Imagine a scenario where somehow we could put this guy's talents to use and have him still generating income that could then go to the victims. Wouldn't that conceptually be a better use of his time and a better way to compensate the victims? Let me ask you a question. If, I'm not going to say you, because God forbid. If uh, Ruvain, if Ruvain was ripped off, if Ruvain lost $10 million to Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, what do you think Ruvain wants? Madoff to sit in, oh, if he could only have one, one or the other, he can't have both, one or the other, would he rather have Madoff sit in jail for 50 years? or rather have his $10 million back. I'm telling you, Ruvain wants his $10 million back. How do I know this? Because who in the right mind cares more about Madoff sitting in jail than getting their money back? But our system is such that essentially we lock someone up behind bars, thereby ensuring that they'll never be able to pay anyone back. Because how can they generate income? Now, I understand what I'm suggesting uh, without suggesting it, can sound radical. Because now the question is, so what are you saying? Let him go free? Let him get a job? I told you, dream with me. Because in our system, we're stuck in a system where somebody commits a crime, 
we handcuff them literally and figuratively to the point that there's no way they can make restitution. There is another system, potentially, in which the guys, there are consequences, the guy is punished, but there's still an ability to make that restitution. Again, who is the adjudicator? if we dreamed, sorry, who's what? Who's the adjudicator? Who decides that he should pay it back or shouldn't pay it back? Good. Is that a civil criminal, a criminal situation? In, in, uh, in, Jew, in, in Jewish law, again, I mean, it's not like this. The, the, you know, these are, what we're, what we're studying is Talmudic law. So okay. it's not really applicable. You know, we don't, we're not really operating with Talmudic law right now. But conceptually, it would be a bet then. A Jewish court back in the day would have those powers. Today, we typically say, the law of the land is the law. So we, we operate by American law, certainly in, in civil matters um, and in monetary matters. But if we want to understand Jewish principles, that's what this course is about, is understanding Jewish principles and how it affects you know, original Jewish law. And there's something to be learned from it, even if we can't transfer it to our system. You know, uh, um, you know, one for one. I think there's still a lot to be learned from from this uh, from this perspective. Okay. Yes, Dr. Maxi. So I understand what you're saying, and yes, there are many offenses and many people who sit in prisons that could be offered alternatives, such as you're speaking of. But tell me, where does the Talmud draw the law line when you're talking? a repeat murderer, a repeat rapist, uh, a repeat someone who assaults, uh, right. does really significant harm that, you know, quite frankly, God forbid, if I'm the victim of any of that, obviously I don't get my life back if you murdered me. And even if it's the other two, you're going to have a really hard time making me whole if you did any of those activities. Correct. And then if you have a pattern of repeating mm -hmm. those, where does the Talmud draw the line in protecting the society from people who, you know, and obviously in this example, they didn't meet any of those other criteria about teshuva because they keep doing it over and over and over. Exactly. So is that where they draw the line? I mean, is that how they make the distinction? Excellent question. So there's a few points. Number one, um, in that scenario, Jewish law, although it typically doesn't have a prison system in original Jewish law, there would be, there would be um, a system by which we keep this person away from society. If somebody is clearly a danger to society, they cannot be amongst society. That is absolute, 100% no. They cannot be amongst society. So in your scenario, absolutely strong measure would be taken to make sure that this person is not a threat to human beings, number one. Number two, but what about their personal rehabilitation? Tonight, I used the easy example of theft, monetary theft. It was an easy example. What about the other the cases that you're describing? So is there, are, we, are we lowering something? Are we making some sort of easy path of entry? It's a very good question. Takanas hashavim, the, uh, the laws uh, leading to tshuva that help with tshuva are typically only with monetary matters, not with those other cases. In those other cases... It would be a much, I mean, shuva is always commensurate to what a person did. So it would be on that level. And is it possible? Yes. Would it require a lot of work? Yes. Are we going to roll dice? We're not rolling any dice in that situation. When it comes to financial stuff, 
we're gonna assume we're gonna we're gonna um, assume best intent and say you know if we if we are making it easier then somebody is gonna have good intentions and do this honestly and authentically and 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 not not use it as uh, you know to game the system. That's how we're gonna approach it. If somebody's a danger, all bets are off. All bets are off. Different system. So yeah, we we intentionally used monetary, you know, I mean, it still, theft could be criminal also, but it's, you know, ultimately comes down to dollars and cents. We use these cases tonight because that's where the Talmud really digs into this idea of opening the path to Teshuvah. Now, that doesn't mean, for example, in other cases, right, like you mentioned, more like serious crimes, that the person should therefore be, should never be given any type of rehabilitation or any type of counseling. We should still offer those. But to, that we're, we're lowering the bar to allow that, that we would be very careful about doing. I don't think there's any parallel like that in those cases. Um, but the notion of you know, offering them um, counseling and even spiritual activities, et cetera, would absolutely be something, uh, something that we do. In fact, as many of you know, the Lubavitcher Rebbe started a, an organization called the Aleph Institute, which is dedicated to providing religious, Jewish religious opportunities to, um, to, to Jewish inmates in the United States. And it's very active. And it's not only for white-collar crimes. It's not only for white-collar crimes. It's, uh, I remember going. I was in New Jersey studying in Yeshiva in Marstown. And I think, I believe it was Trenton, a federal, federal, maybe not federal, I don't know, a facility, a correction facility in, in Trenton, New Jersey, that was, um, I think, a maximum security, I don't know, maximum security, but pretty high-level security that we went to visit. I think we went for one of the holidays to do something, either Hanukkah or Purim. So look, you know, the Rebbe wanted us to visit Jews wherever they are and to encourage because they still have a soul, they still have an neshama, and that still needs to be nurtured. Are we going to make it easy for them to get out and whatever and roll dice and potentially put people at risk? No. Um, when it comes to theft, are we going to make it easy to, to make restitution and, and move on? Yes. So that's, that's where that, it's a great question. And, and, and thanks for the opportunity to, to, to differentiate because that's very important. Jerry. So if you encourage the victim to refuse payment, right? how do you make the victim whole? Good. Excellent question. Good. And again, just to qualify, it's only in very specific scenarios where it's a career criminal who wants to come clean on their own and who doesn't have the original items and would have to sell a bunch of things. To... And in that case, we encourage the victim not to accept restitution. So your question is, even if it happens once in a thousand, that's not fair to them. It's not fair to the victim. How do they get made whole again? The caveat on that is that if the victim demands restitution, we say that's fine. In other words, we don't force the victim not to take restitution. We encourage. So it's not like we're saying you can't be made whole. We're saying consider, consider letting go of being made whole with the knowledge that it might help this guy get out of a very bad place. And if that still doesn't do it for you, and you're like, I don't care, I want my money, then take your money. Not a problem. But then the, then the victim is castigated, and now he's 
Back in the hole again. Well, you know what? We had two different texts. So the one text from the Talmud indicates that the victim is castigated for taking it, but the text, the final text from the Code of Jewish Law modifies it a bit. You know, the Talmud, we, it's only one excerpt from the Talmud. There's different opinions of the Talmud. But the Code of Jewish Law, um, let me put this back up on the screen um, just to clarify. You see this? If the thieves, oh, I'm sorry. Um, Oh, it's a bit different. I, I'm, I stand correct. If the thieves insist that they wish to pay, the victims are not cautioned against accepting it. But your question is, not if the thieves insist. If the victim insists, then it goes back to maybe what the Talmud says, which the Talmud said that if the victims accept the thieves from the thieves, the sages are displeased with their conduct. And now it sounds like, man, all the guy wanted is to be made whole, and now you're like wagging your finger at them, that doesn't sound nice. You're right. You're right. It's a very good question. It's a very good question. Um, the only thing I could think of, and, and I don't know if it's satisfactory, we would have to look up more commentaries and more, you know, more insights on it. The only thing I can think of is what I kind of said before, which is that we, we wish for the victim to have a concern, you know, a deeper concern, not just for their own, their own money, but for the better good of mankind, that this person engage in the process of tshuva to be willing to let it go. And if they insist on it, all right, fine, but we don't like it. But you're right. Is it, is it further victimizing the victim or wagging a finger at the victim? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, the only thing is, again, the value, but at whose expense? <laughs> I was victimized. I should also, like, you know, take the high road. What if I don't want the high road? Then, then you're going to shame me for, taking the, for not taking the high road. It's a good question. I, I, maybe that's why it's radical. Maybe that's why it's so radical. That even that, yeah, well, I see how one could argue that it doesn't seem 100% fair. I think the value is the value, but, but you're right. If, 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 if not that any of us should be that victim, but the one who is that victim, they might be being put in a bit of a, of a um, uh, difficult spot. Yeah. They could get a bracha for success for their uh, that they want. Maybe, maybe, maybe uh, there's spiritual reward and blessing. Maybe they'll get back ten times the amount that would have been uh, the restitution. Could be, could be. God, God doesn't, uh, God doesn't remain a debtor. God, God gives uh, reward, ample reward. Could be. Maybe, maybe it says that in the good books. Maybe. I would have to look up, do a little bit more research on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I have a cool question. Sure. Uh, do, do, does this forgiveness, um, teshuva, and does it apply to non-Jews? In concept, sure. In other words, it's the same concept. At the core, everybody has a soul. And at the core, everyone's soul has a core of goodness. And at the core, we seek the, the goodness of every person. So if anybody is not in a good place, whether Jew, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, it doesn't make a difference. The goal would be to help in any way that person to get to a better path. So what we see now, now I think that maybe the bigger question is, is Jewish law binding on someone who's not Jewish? The answer is no, it's not binding on someone who's not Jewish. But I think the value system, I think the value is universal. Because what's the value? The value is that we want the best for the other guy. We don't want to just, you know, sh um, 
uh, um, what's it called again? Um, call them out or, or define them as being bad or evil and you know, slam the door in their face. We want to encourage people to do good things. So this is across the board. This is across the board. This is a human value that we should, that we should be encouraging. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. I remember that um, when, when they brought Eichmann to trial in Israel, he tried to use this against, he said, you know, you, you, you're supposed to be forgiving me for what I did. He tried to use it at one point. Right. But then he said, I, but I don't, I don't feel sorry for what I did. So they weren't, so they weren't obligated anymore. Right. Well, I mean, know. the question is, just because someone says they're sorry, does that mean that they're off the hook? That's no, another question. Yeah, yeah. No, he didn't, but he said he. he I, no, I, 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 I'm yeah. saying even if he said he's sorry, it doesn't necessarily right. mean that he's off the hook. There's still there's still consequences. Well, when, um, can I, uh, Rabbi? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, in relation to this, earlier, uh, I don't remember which of the um, participants brought up the story about, you know, um, forgiving Hitler. Yeah. For, for, for his, um, uh, for being Hitler. But, you know, um, what I was remembering was at some point when I was a teenager, I, I think it was a Eli Weasel book, uh, Sunflowers. I'm not 100 percent certain, but you know, so he has a hypothetical. He has a case in there where, when he was uh, true or not true, I don't know. Where when he was in the camps, he was brought out, and some some Nazi was all in band, like all in bandages and, and almost like wrapped up like a mummy, and begged for his forgiveness for his actions and killing right. Jews. And, and in that particular case, the way I remember the resolution was was that um, he couldn't for, he didn't forgive him he couldn't forgive him because that was not anything that was done specifically to him. Correct. You know, like you, you, you could only forgive um, um, bad things that are done to you, not you know to, to the Jewish people in general. Anyway, I just wanted to add that. Excellent, excellent clarification, and you're 100% right. By the way, that book was written by Simon Wiesenthal, and, um, and he actually writes that he did not, he did not forgive the Nazi, and that, as, you, as you recall correctly, and he then turns it over to thinkers and philosophers and religious leaders to weigh in on the question. Deborah Lipstadt from Atlanta, right? Deborah Lipstadt writes beautifully exactly what you said. Deborah Lipstadt writes that according to Jewish law, which is, she's 100% right, according to Jewish law, according to the Jewish perspective, a person that asks for forgiveness has to go to the victim. You cannot ask someone else to forgive on someone else's behalf. So Simon Wiesenthal could not forgive this Nazi on behalf of something that he did to someone else. <laughs> what's, what's the connection? Now, which raises another question. So what if, I mean, what if the person that needs to be asked forgiveness from is no longer alive. So what do you do? Right? You got somebody wants to ask forgiveness, but the, but the person's not alive anymore. So halachas. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's exact. Jewish law says you go to the grave, one hundred percent. That's literally what Jewish law says. You go to the grave, you go to the cemetery, and you ask for forgiveness. It's a, it's a pretty heavy thing. You one cannot ask forgiveness from a third party. One cannot grant forgiveness on behalf of a third party. It's got to be person to person. That's the way it works. The restitution has to be person to person. The relationship has to be built person to person. And again, it gets me back to Cherry's question, which I think is a good question. Because at what the end if, of the day, I, I, yeah. What if the person doesn't want to, okay, let's say you do all that, you know, like, you know, you, um, and, but, but the person doesn't want to grant forgiveness. 
are you off the hook at that point? Yeah, yeah. Well, according to Jewish law, you're on the hook for three times. Three, trying to, well, first of all, restitution is restitution. You got to make restitution, number one. But the appeasement, which was step number four of the five steps, step four, it appease the victim. Uh, Jewish law says you got to do that three times in different ways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a silly example, right? It's like if you're buying someone a gift, right? So first you try the flowers, then you try the chocolate, then you try the vacation. I'm, I'm, I'm joking, right? I don't mean that literally, but I mean like it has to be three different, different methods. I don't know if those are different methods, but three different ways of trying to appease. Appease is not saying I'm sorry. That's not called appeasing. Appeasing means to really get in good graces with the other person. If a person gives it sincere effort for three, three times and the victim just is unable or unwilling to forgive, then the, um, uh, the one who, who did the wrong is off the hook for asking again. They could keep on asking, but they don't have to. The Talmud discusses cases where, you know, a rabbi did, and he kept on asking, 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 you know, for the rest of his life. But, you know, to be extra pious, you might still do that, you, but one might still do that. Um, but you're only, op- the op- obligation is only three times. By the way, there is no obligation on the side of the victim to ever forgive. The victim is encouraged to forgive if the other party is sincere and remorseful. But the Torah, Jewish law, never says you have to forgive. Because that's, that's in the heart. Very hard to legislate that. Very, it's impossible to legislate that. You, what's legislatable is that the one who perpetrated the wrong has to ask and appease has to, you know, three times. But on the other side, it's encouraged. But it's not, it's not mandated. Anyway, all right. I know it's late. We're going to close it out. Thank you for joining tonight for Lesson 2 of Beyond Right. Can't wait to see you next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. Have a good night. And we'll see you all soon. Take care, everybody. Lila Tov, thanks for being here. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you have a wonderful day.